0: We are looking at the heart storm uh, that was taking place in Jonah this morning. Remember Jonah? Remember way back to Jonah (laughs) before all of this stuff happened? And now we resume and uh, begin to actually move towards a conclusion in this series. I debated within myself as to whether or not to actually resume or move on to something else. But you know, if we don't look at this final chapter... In this two page book, this two page story in your Bible, uh, then we miss everything. We miss the the whole point of the story. We miss the critical and essential truths of this story that God has for us. So turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. And we're looking at verses 1 to 4. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Look at it together with me. But what God did was so terrible to Jonah. And if you're wondering what that was, then you need to go back and look at it again. And in fact, I encourage you to just... uh, in these uh, coming days and weeks to uh, just read Jonah again, just to refresh your memory. And if you want to get the previous messages to this point, uh, you can go back on uh, our website or speak to Sue Chatterton, and she can hook you up. Uh, But what God did was so terrible to Jonah that he burned with anger. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I spoke of when I was still in my homeland? That is why I fled with haste to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, very patient and abounding in steadfast love. And who also renounces plans for bringing disaster. Isn't that a beautiful description of who God is right there? And think about it. It's in the Older Testament. How about that? For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. Very patient and abounding in steadfast love and who also renounces the plans for bringing disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for to me death is better than life. And the Lord said, Is it good for you to burn with such anger? Of all the books of the Bible, Jonah has the most un. Expected and overlooked final chapter. And that's why I finally decided to resume this together uh, with you rather than just move on to something else because we don't want to miss this final chapter. Most people, most of us, have heard the story of Jonah in one form or another, but they think of it as ending at Jonah's repentance and release from the fish. A smaller number of people may be able to tell you that the story goes on and that Jonah obediently went and preached successfully to Nineveh. Almost everyone thinks the story ends right there. Yet there is a final startling chapter in which the actual and the real lessons as i said a moment ago of the entire narrative the entire story are revealed to us so if we just move on and forget about chapter 4 then we're really going to miss it and what god has for us in this story this incredible break right here at the beginning lapse of jonah that we are witnessing right here at the beginning of chapter 4. As we've already considered in our previous studies together in this uh, story, Assyria was the greatest power in the world at this time. And the cruelest. It's understandable that at first Jonah did not want to go and preach in its capital. Yet when he finally did, when he finally went and announced God's coming judgment of giving them over to their evil behavior, there was massive repentance that took place in Nineveh. Now, although the nature of this repentance uh, and turning away from evil was more of a social reform than it was an actual spiritual transformation, nonetheless, even at that, God, who is gracious and merciful, God who is slow to anger, God who is abounding in steadfast, unfailing love, eager to relent and not to punish, He granted, even at that, a reprieve. And he did not permit the city to be overthrown and destroyed. It was nothing short of astonishing. Many modern readers of Jonah respond to such a story as this with skepticism. We're all cynics to some measure or another. Quick to believe accounts of mass violence. But it's harder to believe that the various classes of people of a great city would actually unite and agree to turn away from living lives of injustice. But that's what happened here in Nineveh. Even so, we still wrestle with this. We're still struggling to wrangle our cynicism and skepticism to the ground. But that's exactly what happened here in Nineveh. There was a turning from injustice. This shows us how... Powerful the living word of God is. Even though Jonah preached it with reluctance in his heart, the living word of God is more powerful and transformative than we can imagine, loved ones. Now this would lead us to expect that the book would end right there at the end of chapter 3. On a note of triumph, when Jonah uh, returns to his homeland rejoicing. But instead, events take an unexpected turn. This change of plans, verse 1 of chapter 4, this change of plans, the narrative says, upset Jonah greatly. And he became very angry. Our last episode, so long ago when we were together in this series, closed with the Ninevites turning away from evil. And if you read chapter three again, you'll see that. This episode opens with Jonah's heart furiously burning with evil. The Ninevites turn away from evil. Jonah's burning with evil. When the Ninevites decide to turn away from evil, their very turning, ironically, becomes for Jonah an evil in and of itself. The the Hebrew here literally reads, and it was evil to Jonah, an evil great, and it burned in him. He was incensed. This was something more than just mere displeasure. He finds that the time fuse does not work on the prophetic bomb he planted in Nineveh. What God did was so terribly evil to Jonah that he is now himself a burning pyre of anger. He cannot stomach... What, in his opinion, was Yahweh's cheapening His mercy by offering it freely to all, especially the likes of Nineveh. The reaction is shocking and inexplicable, really. I mean, do artists get angry when a prominent museum accepts their art for an installation? No. Do musicians get angry when they are given a standing ovation at the Queen Elizabeth Theater? No. Why then, when Jonah has just preached to the toughest crowd in his life, and they have received the message and responded positively down to the last person, why would he have a meltdown like this of furious rage? Nothing exalts God more than the scandal of his amazing grace. I'll say that again, nothing exalts God more than the scandal of his amazing grace. And number nothing humbles us more or robs us of any grounds for boasting and exposes our utter failure more than that same grace. Because that amazing grace is given apart from any of our our own human achievements or worth. It is not something we've earned. It is not something we've merited. It's given freely. And that was most certainly scandalous to Jonah. And perhaps even to us here this morning. What exactly was Jonah's problem? Well, it was it had a number of components to it, which we're going to look at, but but first, there was a theological problem going on here with Jonah. In verse 2, look at verse 2 again with me, will you? Jonah says, Oh Lord, didn't I say this was going to happen? Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this? That is why I ran away from Tarshish. I knew that You are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn Your back from destroying people. I just knew You'd do this, God. This description right here, again, that I've repeated now three and now four times, you are merciful, compassionate, slow to get angry, with unfailing love. This is a recurring descriptive Old Testament refrain of Yahweh. We hear this again and again. If you look at Joel chapter 2 verse 13, we hear this again and again, the God of the Old Testament. Please hear this, the God of the Old Testament despite modern misconceptions is kind and merciful. He takes a deep breath. He puts up with a lot. This most patient God, who is extravagant in love, always ready to forgive and cancel catastrophe. These words, in fact, are a direct quotation of Exodus, 34 and verse 6. They were familiar to Jonah as a kind of doxology. The statement holds the authoritative status of a creed in ancient Israel. And Jonah knew this well. A creed that applies not simply to Israel, but to all he has made according to Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. The essence of this creed's confession is the affirmation of the priority of grace in all God's dealing with His creatures. Indiscriminately. Yes, this is the Older Testament we're talking about. An Older Testament picture of who God is. So knowing this, Jonah did not want to undertake the prophetic mission that he was given because he did not want to be an instrument of saving Israel's hated arch enemies from destruction. Jonah didn't want to be that guy. Even, you see, even at this late point in the story, chapter 4, the final chapter, Jonah still remains an unreconstructed Israelite nationalist. Religious nationalism was still pumping through his veins. And it was very much in contrast and contradiction to the universal heart of God and the outlook of this story. Jonah did not disagree with the creed in principle, his problem is that God is too loose, too lenient in His practice of what this creed confesses. Ironically, in light of Jonah's own track record, Jonah doesn't seem to feel this way concerning the exercise of this same grace toward him. That he himself is still alive, even because of this very grace. God's grace, beloved, his amazing grace, is not the possession of a certain elect group of people. Yeah? It's not at their disposal to do with, to dispense as they see fit. God's grace is something which they too are freely given. We are freely given without any merit on our part. And it is not our possession to dispose To dispense as we see fit. It is God's grace. And He dispenses of it as He sees fit. Indiscriminately. So it's at this point, at the very heart of Israel's understanding of her faith, that we are now let in ...on the actual ongoing argument Jonah has been having with God all along. We haven't really fully been given the details of it throughout the story. We've known, it's been hinted, it's been alluded to. Uh, Jonah's expressed some things and it's, it's left us with the, the understanding that something's up here with Jonah... And, ...and he's got some issues with God and we don't know exactly what that involves... But now we're let in on this final chapter of what exactly that is. His issue with God's indiscriminate outpouring of grace. That He truly is a God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger, filled with unfailing love. In principle, Jonah agreed with that in his head, in theory. But in the living out of it, He struggled. There was a theological turmoil going on in his heart. Verse 2 and 3 of chapter 4 give us a brief sample of this, but it's not too difficult, I think, for us to imagine the rest of it. I just knew, God, you might do something like this. I saw this coming, and I called it. These people are evil. These people are Gentiles. And they only changed because they were scared. They didn't convert and start worshiping you. They merely promised to start changing. And you bestow on them mercy for that? Just that promise to start changing and you give them freely of your mercy right then and there? It's good that you are a God of mercy, grace, and compassion, but this time you've gone way too far, God. This is too much. To Jonah, this was a theological embarrassment and a divine faux pas of which he had been compelled degradingly and humiliatingly to be an instrument. His complaint is not that he has lost his prophetic reputation, but that God's behavior does not conform to Jonah's theology. How often do we become... Distressed and disillusioned and agitated because we feel that God's not meeting up to our expectations. He's not conforming to our own theology and understanding of who He's supposed to be and what He's supposed to do. Boy, hasn't that been something we've wrestled with through days like these days we've been walking through. Now, it would be easy for us to condemn Jonah, but we don't want to do that here for obvious reasons. So much of Jonah is in us, in me, in you. Jonah's attitude here is freighted and laced with egocentricity. He's he's being driven by his own ego. He literally counters. are Are you seeing what he's doing here? He literally counters his word against God's word. My word was correct, claims Jonah, and God's was ill-advised. I, or my, occurs no fewer than nine times in the Hebrew original of verses 2 and 3. So Jonah feels that he can no longer represent Yahweh, and he prays here, For death, death to me is better than life, he says. He as much as harshly rebukes Yahweh, saying, over my dead body, to put it in our vernacular today, God, over my dead body, are you going to do this? Over my dead body will I accept this over-the-top demonstration of your grace. Jonah himself forgiven, a living miracle of God's grace. He cannot accept that non-Israelites should be forgiven as well. The name Yahweh translated the Lord has not appeared since chapter 2. But now Jonah literally cries, Alas, Yahweh! This is the personal covenant name of God that's used here. The personal covenant name of God, which He reveals only to His people Israel. And it is the covenant of God with Israel that is much in Jonah's mind as he's trying to process this. The Lord had promised to preserve Israel and accomplish his purposes in the world through them. How can God keep his promises to uphold his people and at the same time show mercy to his people's arch enemies? How can he claim to be a God of justice while allowing such evil and violence to go unpunished? You see, in Jonah's mind then, the issue is a theological one. There seems to be a contradiction going on here for Jonah between the justice of God and the love of God. He knew that God loved Israel and extended his mercy to his chosen people. He felt in the very marrow of his bones that this special love of God should not be extended to Gentiles, above all to evil Gentiles such as the inhabitants of Nineveh. So we see that in their attitudes towards the repentant Ninevites, God and Jonah are diametrically opposed. God turns away from anger. Jonah becomes furiously angry. This episode is marked by the deep gulf which separates God and Jonah. It was a theological conflict that related very closely to life as it is actually to be lived. You see, it's one thing for us to have in our heads and understanding a creed that we confess I believe in God the Father. We confess these things, the creeds of our faith. But it's another thing when we have to begin to live these things in our day-to-day lives. And this is where we find Jonah. And there's a chasm of separation between him and God in this moment. Now, as I said, it would be easy for us to sit here, high and mighty, looking down our noses at Jonah today. Come on, Jonah. Don't you know better? You're smarter than that. And we could condemn him quite easily at this point, assessing his behavior as petty and vulgar and contemptible and graceless and mean-minded and narrow. For certain, his attitude is far from being commendable But we should not be ready to write off the prophet too quickly. For one thing, the Lord does not punish him. As angry as he gets with God. Notice that. God does not retaliate in kind. But rather, God treats him with patience and concern so as to bring him to realize what is wrong. What a touching and beautiful picture of God, again, we see in this moment. Are you not grateful for God's patience? I am so grateful for his patience with me. You may sit there in wonder at how God can be so patient with me. But I am so grateful for his patience. His patience with us. His slowness to anger. Not willing that any of us should perish in the fruit of of our own attitudes, and outlook, and conduct. Here we see not the disobedient prophet running away from his divine commission, but we see the perplexed prophet obeying without understanding the Lord's ways. And until we grasp the measure of Jonah's perplexity, until we really sit with that for a moment and, and, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, get a hold of it and, and and the full measure of Jonah's perplexity and his bewilderment as to why God was so slow to act in judgment against evil and evildoers, we should not be so quick to denounce and declare Him guilty. We ourselves, if we're honest, have found our finding will find eventually ourselves in this same place before god as jonah disillusioned bewildered perplexed god how can this how can how can this ha- how is it you're not intervening how can this be going on we must also remember that under assyria Israel had been subjected to severe hardships in life. If you recall, we've looked at some of those in our previous times in this story. They were subject to foreign powers. They were subject to economic difficulties affecting daily life and health. A highly uncertain future in which to raise their families. This is the reality of life in the Israelite community for whom the prophets had promised a glorious future. It was a community characterized in significant ways by disappointment and despair. And it is to this kind of community that the word to go to Nineveh Comes. Life is now to be offered to the wicked. While Israel continues to suffer a life of distress. Eking out a living. How can that be? Some of you can relate very closely with this. uh, Even when you consider your home countries. And your homelands that you have come from. And the oppression of governments there. And the corruption that prevails. Here they are, eking out a living. How can this be? What sense does that make? Something horrible has gone wrong with the basic order of things. Futility. Faith in vain. A spirituality of bewilderment. This is where Jonah was. And it is such an understanding of the situation that we must have. If we are going to be able to comprehend this heart-wrenching, death-wish response on the part of Jonah. We've already seen in this story how bad theology may lead to bad living to disobedience. Here we see how bad theology may also lead to despair. If the Israelites had not had such a low and limited vision and understanding of their God, hear that please, if the Israelites had not had such a low and limited vision and understanding of their God. And understanding that, among other things, tied together much too closely faith in God with social, political, economic prosperity. Boy, this sounds a lot like the day you and I are living in. A faith. That, among other things, was tied much too closely with social, political, and economic prosperity. If they hadn't had such a low view of God in this way, they would have been better enabled to cope with the realities of their lives. Their faith would have been grounded in a greater, higher vision of God and thereby be more vigorous and robust. They would have been better enabled to navigate the realities of life. Beloved, this is for us. We must be a people who think rightly about God. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important and telling thing about us. A right concept about God is basic, is key, and is foundational. To our lives and to our worldview. To our practical living. A life of loving, life-giving faith and worship in the real world. Like Peter in Acts chapter 10. Maybe you remember the story. We need our worldview transformed. Read Acts chapter 10. And you see how Peter, he's on the rooftop praying, and God begins to radically change and transform the way He thinks and His worldview. And likewise, for us, we may need our worldview transformed we may need our theology corrected, adjusted by the Holy Spirit. This begins with thinking rightly about God. How how does worldview work? A, A worldview is not the way we look at the world. That's not worldview. A worldview is the lens through which we see the world. And that lens makes a difference. Most people are not aware that they are looking through the lens of worldview. But each of us has such a lens. Every one of us, there are no exceptions. And if we are unaware of that lens, then we are hard-pressed to see the world as it is. The lens has colored and distorted our view of reality. The lens is often ego-centered, as it was for Jonah. If we don't understand this, we will continue to think that we see the world as it is. Rather than through the lenses we all have. Bluntly, this lens is the bias we all have. If our worldview is an in-Messiah worldview. If our worldview is an in-Christ, Messiah worldview, then we are doing well at becoming the new creation people, the new humanity God means us to be. If we reveal aspects of our worldview that are less than God intends that are less than in Messiah, less than in Christ, less than the new creation people of God we are meant to be, then we must repent. Metanoia is the Greek term. And do you know what? The... English translation repent is really inadequate in its, its, its helping our understanding what is really meant here. Repent at its essence means to have a transfiguration of the heart and the mind. Remember the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain before the... That is to happen in our hearts and minds. And it's a work that is brought about by the Spirit of God. We cannot make that happen ourselves. The Holy Spirit must be at liberty to carry out that work in us. And He emancipates us. And takes us beyond our own mental attitudes. Our own Outlook and conduct that are not in Messiah. The Holy Spirit takes us beyond that. The Holy Spirit uh, brings our hearts and our minds, our very consciousness, our worldview, or our way of processing. He brings it into God's meta. His expansion. Metaneity. An expansion of the way we think, the way we live, our conduct, our behavior, our attitudes, our outlook, our perspective. The Holy Spirit brings us into God's metta, his expansion, thereby placing our lives on the stretch with God and keeping them there. Beloved, oh that we would be a people that are continually on the stretch with God. Hello? I want to be someone who is always on the stretch with God. That has been my prayer before the Lord for so many years now, that I would always no matter what age or stage of my life, I would always remain supple and pliable and shapeable by the Spirit of God and stretchable by the Spirit of God. Remaining on the stretch with God. Repentance. God was desirous to bring Jonah to this kind of conversion and transformation. That's what repentance really has to do with. It's it's a conversion of sorts. A transformation that takes place. A transfiguration. An expansion. He was desirous to bring Jonah there. And loved ones, he's desirous to bring us there as well. You and me. And perhaps, perhaps... I certainly don't stand here today as one claiming to have all the answers, but perhaps that's one reason why we've been walking through days like this. Because God is seeking to bring us there, to transform the lenses, to keep us on the stretch with Him that we would have our theology adjusted and corrected so that our understanding of God and how we think about God, the story of Job is all about that. The story of Job is about how we think about God when we go through times of suffering and struggle and perplexity and difficulty the way Jonah was experiencing right now in this moment of this story. Because how we think about God, especially in times like this, will have a radical effect and impact on our lives and on the lives of others as we represent him or misrepresent him to the world.